Chapter 22 of In Search of the Unknown by Robert W. Chambers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. Chapter 22 It was high noon in the city of Antwerp. From slender steeples floated the mellow music of the Flemish bells, and in the spire of the great cathedral across the square, the cracked chimes clashed discords until my ears ached. When the fiend in the cathedral had jerked the last tuneless clang from the chimes, I removed my fingers from my ears and sat down at one of the iron tables in the court. A waiter, with his face shaved blue, brought me a bottle of Rhine wine, a tumbler of cracked ice, and a siphon. "'Does monsieur desire anything else?' he inquired. "'Yes, the head of the cathedral bell-ringer. Bring it with vinegar and potatoes,' I said bitterly. Then I began to ponder on my great-aunt and the crimson diamond. The white walls of the Hôtel Saint-Antoine rose in a rectangle around the sunny court, casting long shadows across the basin of the fountain. The strip of blue overhead was cloudless. Sparrows twittered under the eaves the yellow awnings fluttered. The flowers swayed in the summer breeze, and the jet of the fountain splashed among the water-plants. On the sunny side of the piazza the tables were vacant. On the shady side I was lazily aware that the tables behind me were occupied, but I was indifferent as to their occupants, partly because I shunned all tourists, partly because I was thinking of my great-aunt. Most old ladies are eccentric, but there is a limit, and my great-aunt had overstepped it. I had believed her to be wealthy. She died bankrupt. Still, I knew there was one thing she did possess, and that was the famous crimson diamond. Now, of course, you know who my great-aunt was. Excepting the Kohinoor and the Regent, this enormous and unique stone was, as everybody knows, the most valuable gem in existence. Any ordinary person would have placed that diamond in a safe deposit. My great-aunt did nothing of the kind. She kept it in a small velvet bag, which she carried about her neck. She never took it off but wore it dangling openly on her heavy silk gown. In the same bag she also carried dried catnip leaves, of which she was inordinately fond. Nobody but myself, her only living relative, knew that the crimson diamond lay among the sprigs of catnip in the little velvet bag. Harold, she would say, do you think I'm a fool? If I place the crimson diamond in any safe deposit vault in New York, somebody will steal it sooner or later. Then she would nibble a sprig of catnip and peer cunningly at me. I loathed the odor of catnip, and she knew it. I also loathed cats. This also she knew, and of course surrounded herself with a dozen. Poor old lady! One day she was found dead in her bed in her apartments at the Waldorf. The doctor said she died from natural causes. 
the only other occupant of her sleeping room was a cat. The cat fled when we broke open the door, and I heard that she was received and cherished by some eccentric people in a neighboring apartment. Now, although my great-aunt's death was due to purely natural causes, there was one very startling and disagreeable feature of the case. The velvet bag containing the crimson diamond had disappeared. Every inch of the apartment was searched, the floors torn up, the walls dismantled, but the crimson diamond had vanished. Chief of Police Conlon detailed four of his best men on the case, and as I had nothing better to do, I enrolled myself as a volunteer. I also offered twenty-five thousand dollars reward for the recovery of the gem. All New York was agog. The case seemed hopeless enough, although there were five of us after the thief. Macfarlane was in London, and had been for a month, but Scotland Yard could give him no help, and the last I heard of him he was roaming through Surrey after a man with a white spot in his hair. Harrison had gone to Paris. He kept writing me that clues were plenty and the scent hot, but as Denay in Berlin and Clancy in Vienna wrote me the same thing, I began to doubt these gentlemen's ability. "'You say,' I answered Harrison, "'that the fellow is a Frenchman, and that he is now concealed in Paris. But Denay writes me by the same mail that the thief is undoubtedly a German, and was seen yesterday in Berlin. Today I received a letter from Clancy, assuring me that Vienna holds the culprit, and that he is an Austrian from Trieste. Now for heaven's sake,' I ended, let me alone, and stop writing me letters until you have something to write about. The night clerk at the Waldorf had furnished us with our first clue. On the night of my aunt's death he had seen a tall, grave-faced man hurriedly leave the hotel. As the man passed the desk he removed his hat and mopped his forehead, and the night clerk noticed that in the middle of his head there was a patch of hair as white as snow. We worked this clue for all it was worth, and a month later I received a cable despatch from Paris, saying that a man answering to the description of the Waldorf suspect had offered an enormous crimson diamond for sale to a jeweler in the Palais Royal. Unfortunately, the fellow took fright and disappeared before the jeweler could send for the police, and since that time, Macfarlane in London, Harrison in Paris, Denay in Berlin, and Clancy in Vienna had been chasing men with white patches on their hair, until no grey-headed patriarch in Europe was free from suspicion. I myself had sleuthed it through England, France, Holland, and Belgium, and now I found myself in Antwerp, at the Hotel Saint-Antoine, without a clue that promised anything except another outrage on some respectable white-haired citizen. The case seemed hopeless enough, unless the thief tried again to sell the gem. Here was our only hope, for unless he cut the stone into smaller ones he had no more chance of selling it than he would have had if he had stolen the Venus of Milo and peddled her about the Rue de Seine. Even were he to cut up the stone, 
no respectable gem collector or jeweller would buy a crimson diamond without first notifying me. For although a few red stones are known to collectors, the color of the crimson diamond was absolutely unique, and there was little probability of an honest mistake. Thinking of all these things, I sat sipping my Rhine wine in the shadow of the yellow awnings. A large white cat came sauntering by, and stopped in front of me to perform her toilet, until I wished she would go away. After a while she sat up, licked her whiskers, yawned once or twice, and was about to stroll on, when catching sight of me she stopped short and looked me squarely in the face. I returned the attention with a scowl, because I wished to discourage any advances towards social intercourse which she might contemplate. But after a while her steady gaze disconcerted me, and I turned to my Rhine wine. A few minutes later I looked up again. The cat was still eyeing me. "'Now what the devil is the matter with the animal?' I muttered. "'Does she recognize in me a relative?' "'Perhaps,' observed a man at the next table. "'What do you mean by that?' I demanded. "'What I say,' replied the man at the next table. I looked him full in the face. He was old and bald and appeared weak-minded. His age protected his impudence. I turned my back on him. Then my eyes fell on the cat again. She was still gazing earnestly at me. Disgusted that she should take such pointed public notice of me, I wondered whether other people saw it. I wondered whether there was anything peculiar in my own personal appearance. How hard the creature stared! It was most embarrassing. What has got into that cat? I thought. It's sheer impudence. It's an intrusion, and I won't stand it. The cat did not move. I tried to stare her out of countenance. It was useless. There was aggressive inquiry in her yellow eyes. A sensation of uneasiness began to steal over me. A sensation of embarrassment not unmixed with awe. All cats looked alike to me, and yet there was something about this one that bothered me, something that I could not explain to myself, but which began to occupy me. She looked familiar, this Antwerp cat. An odd sense of having seen her before, of having been well acquainted with her in former years, slowly settled in my mind and although I could never remember the time when I had not detested cats, I was almost convinced that my relations with this Antwerp tabby had once been intimate, if not cordial. I looked more closely at the animal. Then an idea struck me, an idea which persisted and took definite shape in spite of me. I strove to escape from it, to evade it, to stifle and smother it, an inward struggle ensued, which brought the perspiration in beads upon my cheeks. A struggle short, sharp, decisive. It was useless. Useless to try to put it from me. This idea, so wretchedly bizarre, so grotesque and fantastic, 
so utterly inane. It was useless to deny that the cat bore a distinct resemblance to my great-aunt. I gazed at her in horror. What enormous eyes the creature had! Blood is thicker than water, said the man at the next table. What does he mean by that? I muttered angrily, swallowing a tumbler of Rhine wine and seltzer. But I did not turn. What was the use? Chattering old imbecile, I added to myself, and struck a match, for my cigar was out. But as I raised the match to relight it, I encountered the cat's eyes again. I could not enjoy my cigar with the animal staring at me, but I was justly indignant, and I did not intend to be routed. "'The idea! Forced to leave for a cat!' I sneered. "'We will see who will be the one to go!' I tried to give her a jet of seltzer from the siphon, but the bottle was too nearly empty to carry far. Then I attempted to lure her nearer, calling her in French, German, and English, but she did not stir. I did not know the Flemish for cat. "'She's got a name and won't come,' I thought. "'Now what under the sun can I call her?' "'Auntie,' suggested the man at the next table. I sat perfectly still. Could that man have answered my thoughts? For I had not spoken aloud. Of course not. It was a coincidence, but a very disgusting one. Auntie, I repeated mechanically. Auntie, auntie. Good gracious, how horribly human that cat looks. Then, somehow or other, Shakespeare's words crept into my head, and I found myself repeating, the soul of my grandam might haply inhabit a bird, the soul of— Nonsense! I growled. It isn't printed correctly. One might possibly say, speaking in poetical metaphor, that the soul of a bird might haply inhabit one's grandam. I stopped short, flushing painfully. What awful rot! I murmured, and lighted another cigar. The cat was still staring. The cigar went out. I grew more and more nervous. What rot! I repeated. Pythagoras must have been an ass, but I do believe there are plenty of asses alive today who swallow that sort of thing. Who knows? sighed the man at the next table, and I sprang to my feet and wheeled about. But I only caught a glimpse of a pair of frayed coattails and a bald head vanishing into the dining room. I sat down again, thoroughly indignant. A moment later, the cat got up and went away. End of chapter 22